Jesus. Oh, okay. All right. This is, yep. I didn't expect this. <laughs> I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on. One of you nuts has got any guts. Let's put a smile on that face. You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you, but what right? Because I have a right to be, and I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let the healing begin. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. So, uh, this week, because uh, movie release schedules are the worst... Uh, and things keep getting moved around. Uh, I brought, I kind of called an audible and brought in uh, one of my uh, one of my favorite guests, Andrew from the AB Film Review and the Last New Wave, because we are taking a look at To Die For uh, to kind of match up with Lady Macbeth, and we'll get into how those two things uh, intersect. But today we're taking a look at To Die For and self presentation. So, Andrew, thank you for being here. Well, thanks again for, for having me on to discuss uh, films and stuff like that. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, and yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, you know, probably the most famous Australian actress, you know, maybe in history. So I, it would feel weird to do a Nicole Kidman movie and not have you on the show. Even though she's technically, really, if we get, get down to semantics, she's really actually not Australian. She was born in Hawaii. Um, so yeah, that's true. You know, that's true. But she, I, I think you can, you guys have can her claim you her. Well, 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 we'll claim you're offering. <laughs> since you're just selling off women, that's that's nice. <laughs> Real nice. All right. Uh, so uh, before we get into the movie, though, uh, why don't you tell people about uh, one of your podcasts and where they can hear it? Um, well, you can listen to the Last New Wave, which is an Australian film podcast, um, which. Dave has been on a couple of times and in fact he's actually done an episode uh, so you know he's bulking up his resume there um, and you Sorry, can hear I've that taken over your both... spot watch out <laughs> that's it <laughs> um, <laughs> you can hear that on abfilmreview.com as well as on the following films network alongside this show nice excellent all right so uh, before we get into the movie do you have a couple movie recommendations for us I do um and, you know, I've messaged you before we uh, recorded to say, you know, can we include documentaries in this? Because, um, you know, I, I, I hadn't really thought of uh, people recommending documentaries before because obviously it's based on real life. Um, but there's a specific documentary which is about self-preservation in some or presentation in, in some regard. And that is a documentary called Deep Water. And... It's about a guy who embarks uh, on a around-the-world sailing trip in a competition and leaves his family back home, and essentially it's a story of, of what occurs on that trip. Um, it's a really fantastic documentary. It's a really powerful documentary. It's one that I love a lot and not enough people have seen, so I highly recommend that because it's, it is definitely all about um, the image that you put out into the world yeah. and how you want people to see um, you know what's funny, Andrew, is I've I've probably seen I would I would guess I've probably seen about fifty documentaries in my life, and I've seen that one. Yeah, and it's really well, there you good. Go. <laughs> so that's a that's, it is. that's a great recommendation. Yeah, good. yeah, 
Excellent. I come up with good ones every so often. It's all right. <laughs> every once in a while, yes. Yeah. And then the other one which I thought of was uh, also kind of, I mean, it's based on a true story, but um, the presentation is by Shirley MacLaine and Jack Black in it. Uh, certainly add a lot of a comedy aspect mm. to this story, and that is Richard Linklater's Bernie, which is, you know, he's nice. a great director and it's one of his best films. And, you know, the, the key aspect of that is that, you know, Jack Black's Bernie is such a nice guy that people just are like, you killed this old lady? Well, no big deal. It's okay. You know, you're fine. So they're the two mm-hmm. films which I highly recommend. Yeah, and that is a great movie and one that's very underseen. I think I I saw it for the first time less than a year ago. And it, you know, for a long time, I thought like, oh, best Jack Black performance, definitely School of Rock. Uh, But his performance there, I mean, that's that's award worthy stuff. Mm. Uh, And and I did not know he had that in him. And I just think he works really well with Richard Linklater. Like they they really are a good tandem. And that that is a movie that is disturbing and funny and emotional and like just it really hits all the marks and it's something that i wish more people had seen yeah definitely and it came out sort of around the mcconnaissance time as well Mm -hmm. and people um you know obviously matthew mcconaughey's in it too and he's quite good in in his small role um so you know if you haven't seen it please seek it out because it's it's really good yeah Definitely. Totally agree. All right. So we are going to take a quick break. I will talk about self-presentation and then we'll bring Andrew back to talk about To Die For. Hello, my name is Andrew. I'm the host of The Last New Wave, the podcast that looks at the wide and varied nature of Australian cinema. If you've ever seen an Australian film and thought, man, I wish more people could see that, then this show aims to do just that. By bringing you reviews of the latest Australian films, as well as retrospective looks at notable and forgotten films from Australia's history, The Last New Wave aims to help further the audience of Australian cinema. We also aim to deliver looks behind the scenes with interviews with directors, producers, and actors of Australian films, such as the director of The Man from Hong Kong, Brian Trenchard-Smith, and the director of All This Mayhem, Eddie Martin. So, make sure to check out The Last New Wave by heading over to AB filmreview.com for episodes or following on twitter or facebook at the last new wave all right so it's time for the psychology section so today as i mentioned earlier we are talking about self-presentation and self-presentation really refers to how people present themselves in order to control or shape how others view them and this is really specifically done in To Die For because she's all about being on television and all about how she looks and how she appears to people in the best possible way. So it usually involves expressing yourself and behaving in a way that creates a desired impression. It's part of a, of a broader set of behaviors called impression management. Now, impression management refers to this controlled presentation of information about all sorts of things, including information about other people. But self-presentation is specifically information about the self. So early work in impression management focused focused in a negative way, in this kind of manipulative, inauthentic use. You might specifically typify someone like as a used car salesperson, someone who lies in order to make a sale, or a person at a job interview who who talks about their accomplishments in such a way that's not completely true in order to get the job. But researchers now think of self-presentation as as really a constant aspect of life. So yes, some aspects of self-presentation are deliberate and effortful, especially in this movie, in To Die For. 
but other aspects are automatic and done with no conscious thought. So here's an example they give here in this article. So a person can interact with lots of people during the day and make different impressions on each person. So you start your day at your apartment and you talk with your roommate and you clean up after breakfast and you present the image of being a good friend and a responsible roommate. Now, if you go to class after that, you may respond to your teacher's questions very and very carefully take notes. And this presents the image of being a good student. Now, later that day, you uh, that person can call their parents and tell them about classes and other things going on, going on in their life, presenting the image of being a loving and responsible child. And that night you can go to a party or go out dancing with your friends, presenting an image of being fun and outgoing. So some aspects of these self-presentations are deliberate, but other aspects aren't. So for example, the kind of talking with your roommates and cleaning up after breakfast may be behaviors you do every day and they're habitual, so they're done with little or no conscious thought. Another example is you may automatically hold the door open for a friend or buy a cup of coffee for a friend. Now these behaviors, although not necessarily done consciously or with self-presentation in mind, convey an image of the self to other people. So although people have this ability to present images that are false, self-presentations can be really genuine. They're not automatically lies. They reflect just an attempt by a person to have others perceive perceive them accurately or consistent with how they view themselves. Self-presentation a lot of times is directed to external audiences like like friends, partners, employers, teachers, children, and even strangers. Self-presentation is much more likely to be conscious if the if the presenter, the person that we're talking about, depends on the audience for a reward or if they expect to interact with them in the future or kind of want something from them or even just values their approval. But self-presentation extends beyond these audiences that are physically present. And imagined audiences can have distinct effects on behavior. So, like, you could be out with your friends and suddenly think about what your parents would think of what you're doing and change your behavior and become more reserved. People sometimes even make these self-presentations only for themselves. For instance, people want to claim identities like being fun, intelligent, moral, and they may behave in line with these identities even in private. So self-presentation is what we would call goal-directed. So you're doing something to benefit in some way. So the most obvious benefits are these interpersonal benefits, like you are presenting yourself in a way that is acceptable to these other people, and you're going to get either like a job, a friendship, a relationship, any of these things out of it. But a lot of self-presentation is directed towards achieving one of two desirable images. One, people want to appear likable. People like others who are attractive, interesting, fun to be with, etc. So a big proportion of self-presentation revolves around developing, maintaining, and enhancing appearance and conveying these characteristics that other people enjoy. The second one is people want to appear competent. So people tend to like others who are skilled and able to achieve things. So another big part of self-presentation revolves around conveying an image of competence. So there's bunches of different ways how people can self-present. So most obviously, we present in what we say. So these verbalizations, these words, can be direct claims of a particular image we want to portray, such as when someone wants to claim to be a good person or altruistic. Or they can be indirect about it. So in that way, you can kind of disclose personal behaviors or standards, like I do a lot of volunteer work. 
other verbal presentations emerge when people express attitudes or beliefs. So if you say, I really enjoy the outdoors, it conveys the image that you are maybe a world traveler, maybe someone who takes some risks, maybe someone who just appreciates the outdoors. People also self-present non-verbally in their physical appearance, body language, and other behavior. So things like eye contact, smiling genuinely, and nods of agreement convey a lot of things. And third, people self-present through the props they surround themselves with. So if you drive a really expensive car or you fly first class, this is an image, of course, of having wealth. Whereas if you have a bunch of diplomas and certificates on your wall, this conveys an image of being educated and being competent, like we talked about before. Also, people judge other people based on these associations. So for example... If you're in the company of a bunch of celebrities, it conveys an image of importance. And also, people will display photographs of themselves with famous people to achieve this same thing. So what about the bad side? What about the pitfalls of self-presentation? So self-presentation is most successful when the image we present is consistent with what our audience, the people around us, think or know to be true. The more this image differs from the image that is believed or anticipated by this audience, the less willing the audience will be to accept the image. So for example, if if you're a student and your grade is really low on the first exam, you will have a lot more difficulty convincing your teacher or professor that you will earn an A on the next exam because it's so far apart. So you might be better off trying to convince them, I'm going to do better on this exam. I'm going to get a B or a C instead of I'm going to ace it. So self-presentations are limited by audience knowledge. The more the audience knows about a person, the less freedom they have in claiming particular identities. But if your audience knows very little about you, you might they might be more accepting of whatever identity you convey. People engaging in self-presentation will encounter difficulties that undermine their ability to convey the image they desire. So first, people occasionally encounter what's called the multiple audience problem. So this problem is when you have to present two conflicting images. So for example, if you're a student and you're walking with your friends and they know you as someone who is kind of impetuous and rebellious, what happens if you run into your professor who knows you as a serious, conscientious student? So then you have this dilemma of conveying conflicting images of the impetuous friend and the serious student. When both audiences are there for it, you have to behave in a way that is consistent with how your friends view you, but also in a way that's consistent with how your teacher views you. The other way people get in trouble is they encounter challenges to their own self-presentations. So the audience may not believe the image that you present. These challenges tend to arise when people are managing impressions through self-descriptions, and that is inconsistent with the, the the evidence in front of the audience. So as an example, if you claim to be a good driver, but then you get a ticket or you get in an accident, where does that leave you? So if people find out you get you got in this accident, you can't you can no longer claim to be a good driver and have them believe you. The third way is self-presentations tend to fail when people lack cognitive resources to present effectively because you're anxious or distracted or tired or any number of things. So if you're talking to someone boring and you keep checking your watch and you're not even really meaning to do it, it's just kind of a reflex, then you're conveying accidentally this image of disinterest. Now, unfortunately, some of the most important images for for us to convey are also the hardest to do. So we talked earlier about 
the most important images we want to communicate usually are likability and competence because that is what people respond to. Now, because these images are so important and rewarded, your audience may be skeptical of accepting these direct claims of likability and competence. So you can't just say, I'm a really likable person or I'm really good at my job because people are going to think that you're seeking personal gain, which you kind of are, but everybody is. So people need to go the indirect route to create these images. And this and these indirect routes can be misinterpreted as well. So, for example, if you're a student and you want to show that you're really wanting to pay attention, you might sit in the front row of the class and ask a lot of lot of questions. But this this could lead to you being perceived negatively by other students or even the teacher thinking you are trying to be a teacher's pet or you're trying to kiss up to them. So there's there's a balance. You you have to kind of you have to strike that balance and it's really difficult. But there's also, of course, a dark side to self-presentation. So in some instances, the priority people place on their appearance or these images can actually threaten their health. So if if one of your images of beauty is someone who is tan, if you put more priority on appearance than you do on your health, you could actually end up with some pretty serious medical medical conditions. Similarly, another way to look at this is so the idea of safe sex. So condoms help protect very well against sexually transmitted diseases and unwanted pregnancy. But if you have this if you have this self-presentational concern about talking about safe sex, carrying condoms because you think it makes you look like someone who is willing to have a one-night stand or, or someone who doesn't care about deeper levels of relationships, then you may not carry them with you and you may not use them. And that could lead to some really difficult health problems as well. I mean, you could end up with an STD, you could end up with an unwanted pregnancy and have to make really difficult decisions. So this self-presentation can really have a dark side. And it's not just the dark side we've talked about before about this kind of manipulation, but it's like if you're afraid of how you look and how you're presenting, then it could lead you down some really dark paths and put and put yourself and people you love in danger. All right, so that's it for the psychology section. I think if you've watched even the trailer for To Die For, I think you can see that self-presentation plays in a lot. She's kind of constantly putting up a front, and we never, I think, really know who she is. But we'll talk a lot more about that. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we will bring back Andrew from AB Film Review and The Last New Wave to talk more about To Die For. Watched the movie? Check. Popped the popcorn? Check. Sealed off all the doors and windows so that no one knows I'm home? Check and double check. I'm ready to listen to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. Oh, hello. <laughs> Didn't realize you were here. Hey, it's uh, Dwight, your best friend from the Broken Brain Podcast. What's that you say? What's the Broken Brain Podcast? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Broken Brain is your weekly dose of mental health. It's a podcast hosted by me, a professional therapist, where we talk about the latest and most exciting things that we can find and learn about in the world of mental health treatment. We talk about anxiety, depression, uh, neurological underpinnings of the brain, addiction. We talk a lot about trauma recovery and uh, just all, all kinds of things that you'd expect from a show uh, hosted by and guested on by professional therapists, and other medical mental health professionals. You may even be lucky enough to tune in to an episode starring your very own David Hart from this very program. Speaking of which, Dave is about to tell us all about how to feel about this new, or possibly old, breaking blockbuster classic movie that he's about to say now. Take it away, Dave. 
All right, so we're back. So you may be wondering, what does To Die For have to do with Lady Macbeth? And I think what I was really looking at here is a movie with a female lead who is willing to go to great lengths to either take care of other, take care of people in her life or take care of herself. So I think there's, there's enough crossover here. Uh, but what did, what is your history with To Die For? I mean, this is uh, not exactly a new movie. This came out in 1995, so now you get to you get to show your age to the audience here. <laughs> um, look, it's it is an old old film, and you know, certainly sat down watching it, and we're like, oh shit, this is 22 years old. Um, and I remember going to see this in the cinema, and you know, I was uh, 11 at the time, so I didn't entirely understand everything that was going on. Um, but it, <laughs> I hope it, um, not. Um, but it certainly, you know, was a bit of an eye opener and, you know, it's, it's, it's aged really well, I think, um, you know, Mm. it's, it's an enjoyable film and it certainly, uh, you know, in regards to the, the work of Gus Van Sant, it's, it kind of stands out as something very unique and very interesting and, you know, it's interesting as well in, in the career of Nicole Kidman and we'll obviously talk about that later on as to where she was at, at that point in time. This is just right. like a random anomaly. Um, so that's my experience with it, uh, you know, growing up. I, I rewatched it many, many times in the, the late 90s as well, um, you know, because it's just I hadn't seen dark comedies this way before. And yeah. I hadn't seen this kind of story in that regard, especially the way that it's edited and shot as well. You know, I hadn't seen that. And, yeah, it's exciting. And I learned a heck of a lot from it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think we can actually talk a little bit about the Nicole Kidman thing right now, because that's that's the thing I most remember about this, because unlike you, I have not rewatched it since I saw it in the theaters. I really enjoyed it. Like, there's no reason to not rewatch it. It's not like I thought, like, oh, I don't ever want to see that again. But it just, you know, I, I, I think I didn't end up buying it, so I didn't end up rewatching it. But I remember when this movie came out, unlike you, uh, I was a little bit older than you. I was 16 when this when this came out, which is you know, in kind of the, kind of a perfect age to watch this movie, given where some of the characters are here. But I do find that I, I appreciated it more on rewatch than I did when I first saw it. Like, I remember enjoying it, but just going like, okay, that was fun and moving on with my life. Uh, but there's, there's a lot here in this movie, but I remember when this movie was coming out, it was a huge deal because before this, Nicole Kidman was just kind of, I mean, in a lot of ways, she was just seen as Tom Cruise's wife uh, Mm -hmm. and, you know, hadn't really kind of staked her claim as a star. Like she had just been in a, in the Batman movie uh, right before this, I think. But this, I remember was her kind of letting loose and playing a really sexualized character, which she had never really done before, at least in American films. I'm not sure about uh, if she had done some Australian films before that, that were, that kind of pushed those boundaries a little bit. But before that, it was stuff like far and away. It was kind of these, oddly chased romance films uh days of thunder that kind of thing so i remember this being a huge deal like people were freaking out about this movie Mm. and i think it almost got too much press for that and not enough for her incredible performance in this movie like this might be one of her one of her best performances and and also one of uh gus van sant's best films so so it's something that has really i i think you can get a lot out of it as a teenager but i think you get more out of it either on rewatch or or as someone who's older and has kind of experienced more and can kind of see these characters for who they are definitely and you know, with her, the films that she did in Australia, they 
you know, they, they never really had this kind of character. She did a film called Emerald City in the late 80s, which is a really fantastic film that she kind of plays a vixen in it, but she has her curly hair and stuff like that, and she's a little bit uh, more mm-hmm. on the ball than than her character of Suzanne Stone is in To Die For. But mm-hmm. that's probably the closest that her, her character was in this particular film. But, yeah, this is, this is just completely unique for her because – she is pushing herself into a completely different way in the sense that she's owning her look, she's owning her personality, and she's, mm-hmm. you know, really challenging herself in the way that, you know, I'm going to be able to use my body in a way that I haven't used before. And it's great to see that because, you know, look, Days of Thunder and Far and Away and stuff like that, and she did Malice in My Life just before this as well, and it's kind of like, you know, they're, they're okay films, but they don't show somebody who's challenging themselves. They don't show somebody who's pushing themselves into an, uh, an interesting area. And I think that you see certainly for Nicole Kidman, and because uh, according to IMDb, she didn't release a film in 1994, which is fine. But, um, you know, I think that the, it kind of feels like she's recognized her place in, in, in cinema in there and gone, all right, do I just follow this this track of going down and doing, you know, these Jerry Bruckheimer films and stuff like that? Oh. Or do I right. take hold of it and actually do something which I want to do? And and I think this is certainly a huge turning point for her because you see later on in her mm-hmm. career that she pushes herself into doing other films that she really wouldn't have done. I mean, how many people are yeah. going to go and say, yeah, I'm going to do a Lars von Trier film, which is set on a black set with no walls and stuff like that? Right. Nicole Kidman will. You know, that's the kind of yeah. actress she is. Yeah, and this is probably, I think you're right, this is probably the turning point, the first real big risk of her career. So let's talk about the direction of this film. So Gus Van Sant is one of the more hit and miss directors for me. Like there are some of his films that I absolutely adore. Like you talk about this, uh, you talk about, I still love Goodwill Hunting. Um, Milk is another tremendous film. And then, you know, we've had our fights about this, but I can't stand Elephant and you love it. And it's definitely like, he's very hit and miss for me. But I think one of the smartest decisions he made uh, regarding this movie is just the casting of Nicole Kidman. If you take a look at the way this movie starts with kind of the the tabloids and all the newspapers going going past the screen, and I, I think it's really easy to to slide Nicole Kidman into this role because she had had to deal with this in her life. I mean, she was married to Tom Cruise, for God's sake. She was with Tom Cruise. So it, it was a really interesting thing. And granted, a very different character than the Nicole Kidman persona she portrays like in in her real life where she is in a lot of ways, especially at this point, like kind of the good girl, you know, the kind of the sweet, Mm. uh, the sweet person. Whereas, you know, Suzanne Stone is not that at all, but I thought it was really interesting to start this movie out with these tabloids going through with Nicole Kidman's picture being uh, kind of splashed across the screen. Yeah. And, and definitely, you know, one of the, the lines which she says is, I mean, it's like if you get too close to the screen, all you can see is a bunch of little dots. You don't see the big picture until you stand back. But when you do, everything comes into focus. And that's it, is that, you know, that's the whole thing about this film is you look a little bit too close and you're just going to get lost in the details. And I I really mm-hmm. enjoy that particular aspect of, of what Gus Van Sant is doing here. And, you know, talked about Richard Linklater before, who's such a varied director. And I think that Gus Van Sant is certainly, um, you know, not as varied, but he's he's up there in, in kind of pushing himself into doing different things. I mean, his next two films were 
Good Will Hunting and then Psycho, the remake of Psycho. <laughs> so it's like, you know, right. could you get any more different than To Die For, Good Will Hunting and Psycho? It's it's crazy. No. <laughs> I <laughs> he's it's really nuts and you know I think that he he is hit or miss quite a bit of the time you know I didn't see Sea of Trees recently but I hear that was just a neither a, did anyone else wreck. it's okay no that's it yeah <laughs> <laughs> um but there he he pushes himself into really interesting ways but I think that in in his whole career there's never been something that's so comical and so kind of scathing and and yeah. Interesting in the way that To Die For has been. And there's some really interesting, great choices that he makes kind of from the start uh, of this film. Like not just the the tabloids, but, you know, you kind of mentioned this idea of, you know, getting closer and closer and closer until you can't see the details. And I love that he uses the camera to do that. You know, we actually have the newspaper and we get closer and closer and closer until it's just dots and we can't see anything. And then for the majority of the film... Unless we were seeing like a flashback, anytime Suzanne is talking, she's against this stark background and it's always in close up. We're never seeing the whole picture because she is maintaining this. I mean, we'll talk about this later, but this kind of this image of herself. And we don't find out until the end of the movie that like she's not being interviewed. She's interviewing herself. She is controlling hmm. the narrative for the entire runtime of the movie. And I think that's just such a, a brilliant decision from a, di- a directorial perspective. This is, you know, to use your, your skill as a director in being able to reinforce what you're doing within the story is an important and impressive thing. And it's something that I think that a lot of directors forget that they actually have the, the right to do as a director, to reinforce mm-hmm. things and to, to show things uh, that, that your story is actually telling. Rather than, yeah, you know, some people go, oh, it was just sitting the camera there and just recording her, Jesus. you know, oh, looking at de- it dead oh, okay. on. But All right. This as is, you mentioned, you yep. know, that, that adds so much to this. who she is as a person <laughs> because she's interviewing herself and she's telling her own story. Yeah. yeah, there's a reason it's being done. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Whereas a lot of other people would be like, oh, we'll just sit it here because, you know, you got to get this dialogue out. The other interesting thing is that, you know, the choice to have people talking to the camera which is something that we see in you know the the office and modern family and stuff like that mm-hmm. and you you kind of like well who are they actually talking to and what are they actually talking to them for you know that that is, is certainly a huge element on this of this film and i don't think that outside of documentaries we had really seen that kind of thing before all too much um sure you've got the christopher guest comedies with you know waiting for Guffman and sure. things like that but they i think that the 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 way that Gus Van Sant implements it here really amplifies the everybody is getting their 15 minutes of fame and everybody is getting their moment in the sunshine, which is really, you know, it's, it again comes back to the fact that he's a technical director in this, in, with this film in particular and using what he knows uh, to the best of his, uh, his extent. It's just great. I really enjoy that aspect of it. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things that I really noticed here is like those those interview segments, it's it's really smart to do it that way because – and this has to do with the script a little bit too. But the interviews lead into these flashbacks. So it's essentially like giving these characters an audience as we're seeing these situations play out. And that's just such a smart decision in a movie like this, which is about like – you know, these people wanting to be famous, especially Suzanne. So even when we are seeing times in her life before she got an audience, she still gets an audience in the way that it's presented here. And I love that. 
Mm. Yeah, there's a there's a great shot of when Wayne Knight's character is saying, you know, he's showing the the documentary for the first time, and he says, "Oh, let's have a look," and then the camera pans across and zooms in on the TV. And I love that right. it actually just sits on the actual TV itself in the regards to. You know, instead of kind yep. of, uh, you know, zooming straight in and being the TV, like we are watching yep. the camera watch the TV, um, yep. which is, you know, it's it's fascinating. It's great because we're still seeing it from Wayne Knight's perspective. Um, and how good is he mm-hmm. in this film as well? <laughs> yeah, he's really like, I, I think I forgot he was in this and then he showed up. And of course, you immediately have... You know, whatever baggage you carry, whether it's Seinfeld or Jurassic Park, it's immediately there. But he's really, really good here. And this is this is just a really well acted film, and we'll definitely get into that. Um, the other mm. thing I wanted to bring up is there's there's some there's a lot of moments of playfulness here from Van Sant uh, that you don't see as much in a lot of his other films. There's a particular scene where there's like this fantasy sequence where Joaquin Phoenix's character is kind of imagining. Uh, what Suzanne Stone would be saying again through the television and kind of this very sexually charged scene and the things she's saying. And then we actually have a sex scene later in the film. And I love that it's all audio. Uh, and we mm. have a character who's watching this happen, but we don't get to see it because it's not necessarily about being being titillated. It's about her, again, having an audience. So even without showing what's happening, Suzanne still gets her audience. And I think that's another really, really cool choice uh, to kind of keep this movie a little bit distant from that kind of those titillating moments, but still but still getting this message across. Well, isn't that the, the, the key focus of the film as well that her goal is to be remembered and to weevil her way into people's minds and so him having those fantasies and those dreams is of course the epitome of of what she wants it's almost the pinnacle of what she wants uh until it tips over into wanting to get her husband killed um you know which is you know something else altogether because it's like okay it's great to be the sexual fantasy of somebody but hey you know, it's even better to be able to get them to go and kill my husband and, you know, me be able to benefit from that as well. Uh, it's yeah. grand manipulation. And, you know, Nicole Kidman really sells it. And that, that particular scene as well, like, you know, there, there is still a point up until, the you know, that point in the film where you're like, oh, okay, this is still the Nicole Kidman that we know and and right. love and all this kind of stuff. It's the Nicole Kidman that we've grown up with and everything. And it's, and it's then, playful almost up until that point. And then it like yeah. it takes a really dark turn. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, okay, well, she's talking about some stuff here, you know, which is, you know, okay, all right. And, you know, certainly as an 11-year-old when I saw it, I was like, Jesus, oh, okay, all right. This is, yep, I didn't expect this. <laughs> yeah, it is a really unexpected performance. And I think we can move to to acting at this point. I think... You know, I'm I'm a big fan of Nicole Kidman as an actress, and this still may be, to me, one of her most memorable roles. Like, it is so out of left field, especially at this point in her career. And I remember seeing the trailers and, and wondering, like, can she pull this off? Can she pull this character off for two hours? Because it's one thing to kind of pick and choose these great moments for a trailer, but it's another thing to carry this over for the entire film. But there's not a single moment 
where it okay i was about to say there's not a moment where it rings false uh and that's not necessarily true but i think it's supposed to like she's not supposed to seem like a real person this is all an Mm -hmm. act this is all a front this is all you know self-presentation but man like she really dives into this character and just she doesn't let up for the entire film and it's really impressive work it is yeah she she really digs into it and you know, I don't know if I would put it up there as one of her best performances, but it's mostly only because, you know, her work in the early 2000s is is some really stunning stuff that she does there at, that, that right. just kind of edges this film out of the that running. But she is still great and she is still challenging herself as an actress, which, you know, repeating what I'm saying, but I think that it's just, it's impressive to see somebody who, could have easily had the career of, say, Julia Roberts or something like that. Right. Who's, you know, good, good actress, but she did a bunch of rom-coms and things like that. And it's, I guess it's kind of like that, that outsider status of, of Nicole Kidman going, you're right, you know, you all think I'm Australian, which is great. And I tell you what, I'm going to push that as far as I can and be the actress that I want to be and be able to go, all right, you know what? I'm going to go all in on this film. And, you know, given that she is the, the focus of it as well, she laps it up every single second. But yeah. she wouldn't have been able to do that if she didn't have a supporting cast that, that helped her out. I was just going to say, and yeah, there is a really great supporting cast here. And and one of the things that Gus Van Sant maybe doesn't get enough credit for is finding young actors. Like if you look at, you know, I mean, he kind of discovered uh, Keanu Reeves and River Phoenix back in the day in my own private Idaho. And here, I mean, we've got Joaquin Phoenix and Casey Affleck who are both, I mean, obviously they became great actors, but they're both wonderful here too. Like I think Joaquin Phoenix, even though, you know, especially at the beginning of the film, you know, which is kind of the end of his journey, he's definitely a little bit off, a little bit disturbing, but for the rest of the film in these flashbacks, he's totally endearing throughout throughout this relationship with Suzanne like you actually care about this kid like he is being kind of brought along by this kind of horrible person and he really it's kind of out of his control and I think he plays that really well that getting swept away Mm. yeah he really does and you know he's Joaquin Phoenix is my favorite actor I think that he is just a, a stunning you know charismatic and he he embodies it he you know holds up the screen in such a way that i haven't seen actors or modern actors do uh you know i absolutely love watching him here and it's great to see you know him in a film like this and you know mm-hmm. looking at what he does now is completely different and it's a great evolution evolution of who he is as an actor and of course he's working alongside his good friend casey affleck as well who's you know mm-hmm. you know kind of uh serviceable in the film he's he's just got to play a dick but he does it quite well. He's good at it. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, whether he's uh, pushing himself or not, I don't know. Um, but, you know, he's he's quite good. Um, but I want to come back to Wayne Knight for a second. And, you know, he's not a huge part, but you have mentioned how um, Seinfeld and Jurassic Park, but that's not the film that comes to mind for me as an actor. I, you know, the film that comes to mind for me is Basic Instinct. And, you know, mm, that whole sure. scene with Sharon Stone, who, of course, you know, you can't help but feel the alliteration of Suzanne Stone and Sharon Stone. You know, there's, a, there's something mm-hmm. going on there. Um, yep. But that whole scene in Basic Instinct, you know, the reaction of Wayne Knight is just as important as what Sharon Stone is doing. And so to put him into a role of being the, you know, television guy 
feels even more, for me at least, uh, felt even more creepy and, and kind of disturbing, even though that's not who he is as a character. I, I, I brought a little bit of baggage to the, the, the role here, and I, I don't know, I think it worked, and maybe that's what Gus Van Sant mm. was going for with casting him in this, this role. Um, but I think yeah. that you know peppering these people around is great. And then on top of that, to also keep in mind as well, now uh, there's something about Mary came out a year or two later, but Matt Dillon's character in that and also in Wild Things was a uh-huh. really disgusting, you know, filthy kind of character. And, you know, so when I'd revisited this film, I came to it with the the mentality of, oh, man, Matt Dillon's such a sleaze. And he's quite, yeah. quite an, you know, he's not a terrible guy. He's a nice guy in this film. You know, he slaps... Suzanne's ass right in front of her dad but you know is that really kind of the worst thing that he does does it you know mean that he has to be killed probably not but again I'm bringing a lot of baggage to the film in the sense that I Hmm. you know seeing who he is as a person and you're like yeah all right I hope that he gets it because he's a he's a despicable person and I think that comes to all the perception and stuff like that and I I'm probably reading a little bit too much, but I think that's what Gus Van Sant was going for with with the casting of all these different people. Um, and yeah, you know, as you're saying, he's really good at casting those young folks. Yeah. And Matt Dillon's interesting in this movie because I think uh, Matt Dillon is... So I've talked about this uh, with, with Mike from War Machine Horse. There are some actors who are really, really good at playing dumb, like maybe a little bit too good. Uh, and he is one of those actors, like to just... Like you, he's one of the few people you could cast in this role where you could see Suzanne because Suzanne is not subtle. <laughs> the things she is doing are pretty blatant, and for her to kind of get away with what she's doing to him, like you got to be kind of dumb to kind of let that go. And Matt Dillon plays it really well, and it's interesting. His career has been interesting. Like he's kind of started out as this kind of really good-looking leading man, and then as you said, went down this kind of sleaze path. You know, in, in those movies you mentioned, and and for me, um, I like him here. But if there's if there's a weak link, it's Matt Dillon. Like he's almost a little too over the top in this role and Mm -hmm. next to next to nicole kidman who has to be over the top it it kind of it almost rubs me the wrong way i don't think it's a bad performance it's just like maybe a tiny bit too much whereas you know the actress who plays his sister Ileana douglas i think is perfect in that role like she is so good and she's one of those actresses that i wish like kind of got more of a chance to carry movies because I really think she could. Uh, and in the small moments she's in the, in these movies, like you want to watch her. And, and I love the interactions between her and Suzanne, like these little looks that, you know, like when, when Suzanne is kind of telling her, Oh, you should just get a little bit of surgery. Like that moment where she's just kind of mm. looking at her brother, like, are you fucking serious right now? Like, I think she's so good <laughs> in this role and so enjoyable because although Suzanne is your main character, She's not exactly someone you're rooting for. So you need to have those moments where someone looks and sees through her. And she's one of the, one of the few people that does. Yeah. I, I love her in this. And, you know, I think on the basis of this as well, I'd, I'd sort out other stuff that she was in and, you know, she is, is a terribly underused actress because she's so yeah. expressive and, and, you know, carries such an energy on screen that it's great to see. One of the things I think is interesting as well is that with Matt Dillon's character, of course, that, you know, it, it, it feels like he is carrying across the, the 1950s aesthetic of, of 
you know, the woman's got to be in the household and stuff like that. And you've got to have kids and all this kind of stuff. And, and of course, Nicole Kidman, Suzanne is really challenging that in the sense that she's going, no, I, I'm damn you. I'm going to, you know, I watch nine to five. I'm going to be able to do <laughs> what I want to do and, and carry through with uh, my aspirations, my career goals and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things I think is really interesting about what Gus Van Sant is doing here is that he is trying to kind of subvert those those ideas and, and challenge this, challenges them quite a bit. And, you know, I think I have issues with the ending of this film only because, you know, with, with stories like this, often I kind of like, oh, I just wish that she would survive. Like I, I, I you know, she does a terrible yeah. thing, but is she a terrible person? I don't know. And, and I don't I, know whether that's part of because of how good Nicole Kidman is, is an actress. And I'm like, She's not so bad. She can kill people. Yeah, no worries at all. Yeah. Like I think I think we'll talk I about that in writing because I have issues with the end of this film too, and I think maybe for different reasons. Um, but the the only person we really haven't talked about is the actress who plays Lydia, uh, Allison Fallen, who is also really good. And it's it's for me like maybe the most disturbing part of this movie is the effect that Suzanne has on her, even through the end of the film, where she's going off on interviews and she's like kind of got the fame bug a little bit, and like she hasn't learned a hard lesson from every thing that's happened here she's just kind of taken it and gone like oh maybe i should do that too you know and that's really disturbing but i think she plays it really really well i i think she does as well and there's a really great moment too where um i think it's early on where she brings out this dress that suzanne has bought her and she's like oh she bought mm-hmm. this dress for me and you know if only i just lose a few pounds and stuff like that and the, and i think her mum's behind her and her mum just goes huh and it's a really mm-hmm. like blink and you miss it moment, but I think it's just great how, you know, on the, the periphery and the, the scenery and stuff like that, that Gus Van Sant litters these particular characters around that kind of, you know, bring people back down to earth in a way of like, you think that you're going to be famous? You think that you're going to be able to be on the same level as her? Ha, no way, not at right. all. And, you know, that, that aspirational quality that Alison Follen brings to this character is really great. Um, you know, and mm-hmm. it's sad as well. I, I don't really know much else that she's been in. I can see that she has been in other stuff, of course, but I don't think she's been as memorable as she was here. And I think she's great. Really, really yeah. um, adds a bit of pathos to the film as well in the sense of, you know, she sees who Suzanne is and is like, yeah, I would, I would really, really like that. But mm-hmm. given the small town that she lives and the life that she lives as well, she'll never, ever have it. And that's kind of heartbreaking. It's it's kind of yeah. sad. Yeah, I totally agree. All right, so let's talk about the script. So there's something you mentioned earlier uh, that you really liked, and it's something that rubbed me the wrong way. So at the very beginning of the film, you know, you know, we have that sequence we talked about where it zooms in on the newspaper, and you just see the little dots. And as I'm watching this, of course, I don't remember practically anything from this movie because I haven't seen it in over 20 years. And I literally thought, like, oh, that's so cool. We're getting so close to it. We can't see anything. Like, that's that's a really great image. And then they just say it. I, I, and I didn't like that they <laughs> made it. So I was like, yeah, I know. I'm, we're not idiots. Like, and she literally has has a line that kind of, it, to me, it like took the power away from that imagery. Like, I get why they did it, but I was a little disappointed in that in that writing moment. Yeah, um, sure. Yeah, I, I, it didn't bother me too much. Only because I think if they if they didn't include that kind of thing, like this is a film that I think could easily 
if you're not on board with it and if you're not on board with what it's trying to say, it could easily lose people who aren't paying attention. And so, sure. you know, I'm, I'm a little bit more forgiving about including those kinds of things for the slower audience members. So um, you just don't but, have faith in people is what this is about. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And, and Fair enough. Know, maybe Gus Van Sant recognizes that. I'm not too sure. But, um, you know, well, in a way, that's kind of what the film is about, isn't it? Like not having faith in people and, you know, <laughs> just kind of, um, you know, not uh spelling things out for people because that's that great scene as well later on where um the guy from um just shoot me is sitting there and explaining you know about the letter uh that mm-hmm. somebody received a- about this weather girl who wants to be a, a huge star and how mm-hmm. he eventually meets up with the person who later on was said to have written that letter and of course that guy is like what? I, I don't know what the letter you're talking about is. And I love Suzanne's reaction because, you know, even though it is getting spelled out to her, she's still like, huh? What? She's not that bright. Oh, she's just really no. <laughs> So I love that All part. Right. So it's just reinforcing what you didn't like at the beginning. There you go. Sure. There you go. Uh, so you talked about the <laughs> end of this movie where Suzanne is, is killed. Uh, I think we're meant to assume that like the mafia came and shot her and I know, I know that they like gave you a couple hints early in the movie that, that his family is in organized crime, but it just, I don't know. It felt so, I don't know. It just, it felt so anticlimactic. Like I wanted something more for her end, whatever it was going to be, but just for her to just be kind of taken out, like kind of out of nowhere, it didn't really work for me. And it really never has. It really kind of bugs me. It feels like, it feels a little bit like a cop out. Like, it's like, we don't really know how to end this. So we're just going to kill off the main character. No, you know what it feels like. It feels like the studio presented it to test audiences and audiences are like, oh, well, she you know, organized to kill her husband. So something's got to happen to her. It feels like fatal attraction in the same regard. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, people like, oh, we can't have something okay happen to Glenn Close. She's got to die a horrible death. And it's like, I don't know. I think that we're only, in my opinion, at least, we're only just starting to see these kinds of women characters not Mm -hmm. be killed and, and allow their journey to continue on after they're doing terrible things. You know, we're, we're, it, it's really sad that, you know, they, they still need to have some kind of punishment and stuff like that. And I'm not right. saying that it's great that they are able to go off and do these kinds of things, but isn't it more challenging? Isn't it more interesting <laughs> as, <laughs> yeah. well, you know, as a viewer, it's more challenging and interesting that they're able to continue on. You know, it's, it's yeah. like no country for old men. Anton Chigger, you know, spoiler alert, but he walks away. He, he right. doesn't get killed or anything like that. Would that film has been as satisfying if we got to see Tommy Lee Jones appear and, you know, shoot him or something like that? No, no. it wouldn't have been. And there's and there's so, thousands of examples of, you know, these unlikable male characters kind of walking away at the end of these films. And with women, you don't really get that, or at least very hmm. rarely. Like maybe movies like Young Adult you know, you, you get, yep. you get her to, to walk away and, and be this awful character and just inhabit it because there are, there are awful women and there are awful men. But if you just watch movies, you would think, one, there are very few awful women and the ones that are die because they're awful. Like, and, yeah. and that, that is what this ends up feeling like at the end of the movie. Like, oh, well, look at how terrible, look at all the terrible things she's done. We got to kill her. And I was just like, and even then, even back in 1995, I was kind of like, what? 
that's how you're ending this? Like, this, it feels out of nowhere and totally out of place with the rest of the movie. And it's, it's really a shame because this is a really, really good movie. And I feel like the end takes some of that away. Yeah. And on the, the other aspect of it as well, and thank you for bringing up Young Adult because I've been holding it in. I didn't want to well, go I know, I... on about that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, with, uh, with Joaquin Phoenix's Jimmy, when he's, kind of reminiscing in the fact that he's going to be in prison for the rest of his life. And it kind of, to me, how do you feel about his remorse? Like, do you think, cause he's, he's like, Oh, his friend, uh, Casey Affleck's Russell is like, Oh, he, he only got 16 years and he'll be gone. And, you know, I miss him cause he's a good friend. Like, mm-hmm. but I, I, part of me is kind of like, I really wish that he didn't have remorse in the sense that like, I did it for this woman that I love and I still love right. her regardless of, of what she's forced me to do. But on the flip side, it's kind of like he needs to see clarity. He needs to see that what he was forced to do was a terrible thing. Um, how does right. that, how did that work for you? So here's what I think. I think it works, but I think it, I think he only has remorse because Suzanne isn't there. I think if Suzanne were to show up and ask him to do another terrible thing, he would do it again. Because he loves her, like, and he still does by the end of the film, even though, you know, she's responsible for him murdering someone else. So I don't think the remorse is complete. I think if you put him in the wrong situation again, then he's just going to be back exactly where he is. Because I think he's sweet and dumb and he doesn't know any better. And you can tell that even at the end of the movie when he's supposedly Mm kind of grown a little bit and feels bad. He's still just a sweet idiot. You know, and he plays that really, really well. I mean, there's even a line where he's talking about his prison sentence. He says, I'm here for for life plus 30 years if I live that long. Like, he's not (laughs) he's not the sharpest tool in the shed here. And he's very easily swayed, especially by Suzanne. And I think he plays that really well. So I think he does feel remorse. He does feel pain over what he's done. But I don't think he is immune to her at this point. Mm. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. It does. Yeah. I, also, I also think from a writing perspective, they do a really great job of showing how different Suzanne is from from Matt Dillon and, uh, and his family. There's a scene where they go bowling and Ileana Douglas's character literally turns to him and says, like, she can't even bowl. Like, this is the most <laughs> foreign thing to her. Like, how do you beat someone who doesn't know how to how to throw a bowling ball? Like, and I love that they set that up from the very beginning. And it is, it's interesting that that is what draws him to her. And what is causing problems with his family are the same thing, is that she's so different and she's so out there. And so to him, she is this like this this thing to strive for, whereas to everyone Mm. else, they're like, why would you want to be with someone like this? She's so fake. She's so false. Everyone else can see it except for him. He thinks this is all real. Yeah. And there's that great shot of him drumming on the stage and you know he's mm-hmm. he's looking across the audience and all the women are, are staring at him and they've all got brown hair or black hair and they're all staring at him you know yeah. going, wow, the drummer's so hot that kind of thing and then eventually it pans back to her and there's this blonde thing that's illuminated in light just standing there and mm-hmm. you know it feels like a light bulb moment for him and a light bulb moment for her because you know he is paying attention to her and she's like wow this feels kind of good this is this is yeah. kind of nice you know, having somebody just stare at me. That scene is really interesting because when the other women are looking at him, he is the he's he's under the gaze and they're way into him. And she doesn't react until she sees him be into her. 
And when she's being watched, then all of a sudden, like, okay, I'll smile at you now because I like this attention. It's not even really about liking him. It's just about liking that gaze being on her. And I think it's, it's, and it's a little subtle difference between the way these looks are being portrayed on film, but it comes across loud and clear. And there's also a lot of really nice touches here. Like when this murder happens, I love the fact that Suzanne is on the TV. So it's like she is kind of watching over this from a distance, even though she's really not. She's just doing her weather report. I love the fact that she is this constant force in the movie, even when she's not in the room. And I think that's a really smart writing decision to have her there, even when she can't physically be there. Yeah, but I I mean, I love that as well. But isn't there just like a... a you know, final kind of twist of the knife in the sense of when, mm-hmm. you know, he gets shot and, and she goes, oh, and I want to say, you know, happy anniversary to my oh, husband. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> just like, oh, oh, okay. That's, that's, that's intense. Um, yeah. And it works so well. Yeah. No. And one of the things I really love about Nicole Kidman's performance here too, and, and this comes back to the script in some regards where, you know, she makes the weather feel like an event. And I think that was kind of a, a really big thing in the 90s or the 80s yes. and stuff like that, where it was like, how do we kind of jazz up the weather and how do we make it interesting? And, you know, putting these hot young things in, in there to, you know, say, oh, it's going to be hot here and stuff like that. It's like, oh, <laughs> you're kind of eroticizing the weather. And, and she does it really well. Um, and she, yep. you know, embodies that, that unwitting, unknowing thing perfectly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so let's talk about the production value a little bit. I think the thing that jumps out at me is obviously the the costume design here. Like, she always looks impeccable, and it really also fits the time period and the area in which they live. Like, it's not it's not Rodeo Drive, but it's Rodeo mm. Drive for where they are. And I, and I really like all the choices. And, of course, it helps that you have, you know, gorgeous Nicole Kidman, like, in her absolute you know, physical prime to to play this role and like very comfortable, very comfortable showing skin in this movie, very comfortable in her own skin in this movie. But like every single outfit is just pitch perfect and they're all different. Like it, I mean, she must have 10 or 12 different outfits in this movie and they're all perfectly on point. Yeah. And it's, it kind of feels, um, you know, coming back to 1950s aesthetic, they've all kind of got nice, either really bright or there's nice pastels mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, and it, it, you know, she looks on point. Is that a term that mm-hmm. people use? Um, yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah. So she looks she looks really nice. Um, and there's also a really great scene as well, which I think it, it works so wonderfully where she's trying on underwear and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Alison Follins Lydia is standing there with her. And there was this great shot of of Suzanne just drenched in the light again. Um, uh-huh. And then in the background, you've got Lydia who's in darkness and, and, you know, uh-huh. she's always going to be in the shadow of Suzanne, which I think is just fantastic. And, you know, it's, yeah. it is quite a literal presentation there, but you know what, uh-huh. you've got to show these things and you've got to do them. Otherwise uh, people may not understand what's going on, but I think that it works really well. Um, and it looks, looks superb. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the lighting, actually, because that's something I noticed in this movie. There's there's another shot um, right before I think I think it's right before the murder takes place and she blows out a candle and then she's like bathed in this red devilish light. And I love that they mm. 
they kind of I love that they went with all these primary colors of the movie, just like you talked about with her outfits, like being really colorful and really bright. And they did this, the same thing with the lighting here. They made it really, they are, they are showing you what's about to happen. They are showing you that she's about to go too far. And they do that without any dialogue, just all with blowing out a candle and changing the lighting. And I think, and I think again, this goes back to directorial choices. This is, to me, this is one of Gus Van Sant's best directed films, or at least the the film where he's trying the most things. Like, I don't think everything necessarily works perfectly, but he's really experimenting here, and he's really just going for it, and it's really fun to watch. Yeah, I definitely agree. He's he's pushing himself into ways, and I kind of wish, you know, again, repeating myself, I'm like, Gus... Stick this film on again, rewatch it and see what worked so well for you here. And let's give mm-hmm. that a shot again. Um, let's not yeah. do this kind of sea of trees or whatever it <laughs> yeah. is kind of stuff. Exactly. Please. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about our favorite scenes. So what's one of your favorite scenes from To Die For? The one scene which I, I think is really fantastic is there's a dancing scene where... Mm. Um, that was on my list she's, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, where Suzanne's, it's raining outside and she's dancing, uh, while Sweet Home Alabama is playing. And it's kind of like, it feels like the, um, something that was very prevalent in the nineties, again, coming back to what, what the films are like then, you know, you got Poison Ivy who did kind of something similar with Drew Barrymore's character and that, and no, I think that there was a lot of certainly, uh, girls dancing in the, the headlights and things like that, but I don't think any any have ever done it as good as what's done here. And mm-hmm. it's just little touches too that, that really push what Suzanne is doing as a character. Like you just get, you know, she lifts up her skirt just enough to see something and you're like, oh, mm-hmm. okay, we haven't seen that from her before. And you know that she's just, she's enticing him. She's like a siren, uh, which is just, oh, it's brilliant. <laughs> and it's and it's an interesting character moment too because right before that death sequence they're talking and things are getting emotional and this is a really easy way for her to distance herself from this and not get real at all like okay let me let me like you know like you mentioned like let me be the siren here let me distance myself emotionally but bring myself closer to him physically because that's going to get me what i want and that's going to get me my audience not you know let's be let's be you know emotionally intimate but let me let me show you something here and let me let me tease you a little bit and she she knows exactly what she's doing so i like that it's not just a moment of titillation but it's a character moment for suzanne as well definitely yeah. But I think my I think my favorite scene is the scene in the classroom where she first kind of meets all these kids. I think it's it's just so it's really wonderfully shot. Like you get that you get that male gaze, which is going to happen because you have, you know, a classroom full of, you know, teenage boys who are seeing this, you know, this beautiful like this beautiful 20-something year old woman and she knows exactly what she's doing. The way that she is posed in that in that scene, and again, this probably goes back. I mean, who knows how much is direction and how much is Nicole Kidman in these moments? But the way her kind of legs and her thighs are being shown off, like she she is angling herself in these really interesting kind of awkward positions in order to kind of show herself off and to kind of get the attention of all these people. And she also knows exactly how to get the attention of Lydia too. She knows how to mm. pay attention to her, and it says so much about Suzanne that she knows how to use 
lose people within a moment's notice. Like even when the kids get out of control, like she could have easily, I, I feel like she could have easily gotten them back under control, but I don't think she wants to. I think, yeah. I think she wants to rile them up and she, and she does every little thing she does in that sequence is to rile these kids up and it works to a T. So I love, I absolutely love that sequence. Yeah, and there's a great shot in there as well where the camera kind of pans, uh, you know, from Casey Affleck's perspective where he's like, he's trying to get a look between her legs and the camera Mm -hmm. pans across and then the teacher comes in and it's like, you know, he, it's just showing that he'll never have that at all. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, she knows that, hey, maybe, maybe this is, this is me and this is what I can use to, to get what I want. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's really yeah, it's a good scene. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, and I also like the way that um, uh, that Casey Affleck's like the way his body position is too. Like you can not only is the camera moving, but you can see his head tilting just a little bit, kind of like tracing the lines of her body with his eyes. And you know, and I do also love that moment when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, because we're seeing it from his perspective, all of a sudden the teacher comes in and kind of completely ruins the moment. For not only, uh, not only Casey Affleck, but for everyone watching, like, because it is, it is kind of tantalizing and it's teasing the audience as well as, as, as the characters as well. It really puts us mm. in that mindset of the teenage boy, which is for some of us, not that difficult. Like we're, <laughs> it's pretty easy for us to get in that mindset. But I think what, what Van Sant is doing with the camera is really helping that along. Yes. Yeah. I agree. I agree. All right, so let's talk about the theme. Uh, so the theme is self-presentation. I had a lot of choices with the theme here. I could have gone with, you know, she's kind of a, she's a sociopath, I think. I think that's that's pretty clear. I mean, we could have gone that route. But I was much more interested in the way she moves in the world and the way she presents herself both to these relationships and and as far as work goes, like she kind of changes who she is on a daily basis to appear in certain ways. So as you were watching this movie with that theme in mind, how do you think it played in? Well, it certainly is about, you know, somebody who recognizes you know, how to manipulate people and how she can use herself to, for her own gain and for other people's loss as well. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it's a really apt theme. I'm glad that you went with, with this one over something like being a sociopath because, you know, that's an interesting thing, but it's, it's not as interesting as, as seeing somebody uh, recognize what they can do with themselves in the world for their own gain. Um, you know, and she does it really well. And I think that's the other thing as well is that it, it, it presents how everybody wants to be seen too in a, in a certain regard, and specifically with Lydia, who's like, oh, I really want to be able to be something better, but she will never be able to do that. Whereas, you know, mm-hmm. it, it with she wouldn't be able to do that without Suzanne's uh, placement and, and, you know, her encouragement to be like this hot young thing. But then mm-hmm. on the flip side as well, that you have somebody like Ileana Douglas's character who, you know, she embodies being a, a you know, a skater and that's <laughs> exactly who she is. She yep. is just exactly who she is in the world and she is nothing else. She is plain, mm-hmm. straightforward and will tell you exactly how it is. You know, in a great part where she's like, oh, you know, she was a four-letter word starting with C, and you think that she's going to say something, and she's like, she's cold. 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 <laughs> Great moment, yeah. 
Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, and she's forward and she's like, she will tell you what you think, what you are. And mm-hmm. that's who she is as a, that's how she presents herself. And she's well aware of that too. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of moments in this, in this film that really lend itself to self-presentation. Like even the end of the film, there's this whole speech about Suzanne always used to say that we're better when people are watching. And that, that mm. really hammers on that fact of like, she is controlling how people see her at all times. Like she wants to be seen in a certain way and she wants to be seen in general and she wants to be her best self constantly. Uh, and even when she's talking to her husband, like, or about her husband, kind of talking about the difference between love handles versus flab, you know, she just doesn't, she doesn't want to just, it's not just self-presentation for her. It's like, everyone should be like me. Everyone should be controlling how they're seen in the world. And she just, she can't understand how somebody wouldn't want to be seen in the best possible light and to be seen all the time. Yeah. And you know, there's a, I think that she, there's points where she overstretches it too, because she still wants to be seen as the the daddy's girl and stuff like that. And there's a great line where she says to her dad, I'll still never find a guy like you, dad. And his reaction isn't like, oh, it's what? what (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And it's our reaction too. Like, what did she just say? That's, uh, that's a little creepy. Uh, And and I think it's interesting that um, there's a particular line when, I think Joaquin Phoenix is is talking to uh, to his other high school friends and he's kind of talking about her and he says, as they're like smashing cars into bits, he says, she just looks clean. And I, I found mm. that really interesting that he he is seeing her as she wants to be seen, as this perfect thing, as this thing that cannot be sullied by the world. Like this is this... You know, she's perfectly clean. She's not like us. We're never going to be like her. She is kind of the utmost. And I, I think I think if she heard that, she would be really happy. And I think that's yeah. why she ends up having a relationship with him and not anyone else. Not just because she can, he's easily used, he's pliable for her, but he views her as exactly as she wants to be seen. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't think of that. Yeah. Which is really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I just think it, it goes through the whole movie. Like her whole character is about, you know, about appearances. Like she just, mm. she cannot let it go. Like, you know, talking about like when, and even when she goes into work and she's always there early and she always stays late. Like she has to, even if, whether she's working hard or not, she has to appear like she is because it's interesting. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned Wayne Knight's character and he kind of talks about how, you know, she puts in all this work and everything she does still looks like shit. Like, it's not like she's putting <laughs> together this amazing work, but she is appearing like she's putting together amazing work. And for her, I think that's more important than anything else. Well, yeah. And I, I love that line as well that she has, um, where she has this grand illusion about what kind of documentary she's making. And she right. says, you know, it, it could end up on PBS, which, you know, sure, it's a smaller audience, but it's got greater prestige. And it's like, right. Uh, no, like PB, you PB, are not PBS Ken Burns. Do not want this. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, so I mean, just to kind of wrap up to die for, I think this is this is a movie that's weirdly been forgotten. Like I remember this being a really big deal in the mid '90s, and most people you talk to, especially younger audiences, probably haven't seen this. And I think it's well worth seeing. I think it is a kind of a brilliant dark comedy that kind of loses it loses it at the end, but it doesn't make the journey not worth it. Like I think this is just for the performances here, and also to see these these actors who will become great actors, like seeing their beginnings is, is a pretty cool thing to watch. Mm, definitely. I, yeah. And look, if you haven't seen it, even if obviously we're spoiled the heck out of it, um, you know, it still works and it's still an interesting mm-hmm. film, even if you know what's going on. And it kind of, in some regards, when you know what's going on as well, it makes the journey even more in- interesting, and exciting. So, you know, please mm-hmm. do watch it if you haven't seen it um, because it's, it is, yeah, it is certainly forgotten. And, you know, these kinds of dark comedies, unfortunately, they don't get the same um, carry through as, as many other films do. And, and I think that's right. because they, they challenge people. They push people into uncomfortable places. You know, the, yep. the protagonist is not always likable. And, you know, that's usually who we've got to sympathize with or empathize with at least. And so right. when they do despicable things, it's like, oh, how am I supposed to feel? And it's like, for me, that's what I love about these kinds of films. So, mm-hmm. yeah, please watch it because it's fantastic. And it's, you yeah. know, one of the best things that Gus Van Sant's ever done. Yep. So there you go. That's, that should agree. be enough. Yeah. That's enough. <laughs> All right. So the last thing we have to talk about is the movie we're pairing this with. And this is going to be a little tricky because we've both seen Lady Macbeth at this point. <laughs> but I want you to kind of uh, take yourself back to before you saw it. And were you looking forward to this before you saw it? Like what were your kind of expectations going into it? Oh, I was looking forward to beyond all belief. Like it, it has everything that I, I want in a film, and certainly, you know, maybe it's um conscious bias and stuff like that. But I, have, you know, in the past few years, I've certainly been paying more attention to films that have uh, women in leads, um, uh-huh. and certainly women in leads that you know usually would be something different. So I'm thinking of things like. Duke of Burgundy, for example, is a great example, uh-huh. which is, you know, that whole entire cast of that film is women. So, um, you know, I, I went into Lady Macbeth with that kind of mentality of like, this is a period piece. It has a, a woman character. And, you know, obviously this isn't about um, Mac, like Macbeth's wife, but in particular, right. it is certainly dealing with similar kinds of themes of, of darkness and stuff like that. And that's right. what really draws me to these kinds of films. So I was really excited about that that aspect of it. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm kind of coming from a very similar place. I saw the the trailer and I was struck by just how beautiful it looked. And anytime you throw in the name Lady Macbeth, you know some fucked up shit is going to happen. So I am looking forward to that. Um, and we will talk about that on the next episode with Andrew. Uh, but before you leave for now, why don't you tell people one more time how to find you online? Uh, best way to find me online is on Facebook or on Twitter at AB Film Review, uh, where I talk about stuff um, on there. And also heading over to abfilmreview.com uh, to listen to episodes of both shows and read written reviews and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Like this. When the world's a bit amiss. And the lights go down across the trail park. All right, so that's it for another episode. Thank you to Andrew for 
kind of helping me out and doing that on not very much notice. I really appreciate it, and I hope you guys all like the episode too. So uh, the next time you hear me, we will be doing a new release review, also with Andrew, on Lady Macbeth. So if you like the show, I would love it if you would tell your friends about it, if you would follow us on all the social media, especially Twitter. Uh, you can follow me at PCKStudy. And actually, if you want to, you can also follow uh, the new podcast that I'm doing with Mike from War Machine vs. Warhorse. We are going to be doing a podcast called The Grand Gesture, which is ostensibly about romantic comedies or any movie, really, with a grand romantic gesture in it. Uh, so if you'd like to follow that account, it's just Grand Gesture Pod. Uh, on Twitter, so please follow us there as well. Now, if you really love Pop Culture Case Study and you want to help us out with your hard-earned dollars, you can go to patreon.com slash study, and there you can actually donate on a per-episode basis and get some cool, cool rewards while you support an independent podcast. All right, so that's it for this week. Until next time, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. The studio didn't want me, and it sort of went through a bunch of How other did you actors. How the part? What did you have to do? Because I called Gus, and I said, please, <laughs> give me the chance. I beg you, because the, the writing was so strong. Yeah. Buck Henry. Yeah. I mean, come on, that's, talk about great writing. Yeah. So you just called him up and said, please, and he gave you the part? Well, I think it was a bit more, I mean, I think he had to, he, he was like, I had to use words from the film, and I was pretty... Um, clever in how I approached him.